So we're going to be in the Gospel of Matthew, continuing our journey there. Uh, where we left off, we'll be in verse 27 of chapter 9. Blind eyes, a tongue tied, and compassion override. That is tonight's title. Blind eyes, a tongue tied, compassion override. We have really been moving uh, fluidly in Matthew, and I suppose that has even a better word dynamically is that the Lord is really touching people, moving seemingly quickly. It almost seems as like the speed of light. Well, he is light. He's the light of the world. It seems, though, that what he is doing is so profoundly giving no argument to those who have seen and to those who are the skeptics that he's none other than whom he had declared himself to be, the Son of God. In where we've left off, where he touched a woman who had been bleeding for 12 years, the lifespan of a young girl that had passed away at 12 years, both of them had been touched by the same God. And it would almost seem, at least as far as how quickly it happened, within really just the short appeal of a father and the appeal of a woman who realized her liability and her very foreboding future, the Lord just allowed them to be touched by him. The woman literally satisfied if she could just touch the hem of his garment, and the little girl, having no say in it whatsoever, but for the voicing of a parent, and Jesus responding and going to that place, pretty extraordinary. And so when we see that the Lord does, in fact, change an outcome or a predicament, that it has with it a promise and a redemptive punctuation mark, it is a beautiful thing. Some would say, when we talk about these things that seem to be almost then at a reverse of making an announcement that a brother went to heaven, how can that be? Well, because there are things both on earth that get settled in a finality that ultimately have everything to do with heaven and eternity. We're not privileged to escape indefinitely that particular outcome. The thing that causes us to have apprehension, though, is it is unknown to us. And therefore, our minds and our hearts can get played to believe that anything that short circuits our time on earth right now 
delays, you know, perhaps what we believe is a better future, we pretty much get it wrong. I believe that to be true just because Paul was forbidden even to speak about what the Lord had privileged him to see in a heavenly experience. But it's interesting how much we cling to the earth and to the things that we have or possess on the earth. And that is even the precious life that we have been entrusted with. So I just want to be able to say that I believe this entire text for the past couple of weeks has been the Lord just saying, I'm there for you. And even when it seems that others would argue the point that I'm not, I am. And I am that I am. And I shall do what I will do. Because that's the God that I am. And I always do things that ultimately benefit those whom love me, committed their lives to me. I've got a great place that I'm working on behalf of them for. So this is none the less exciting. On this particular transition, though, and it's interesting because you will realize there is a character named Blind Bart, Bartimaeus, but he falls really a little bit further down the road in the ministry years. It's at times confusing when the gospel accounts give sometimes what appears to be parallel pictures through men that Jesus is literally responding to. But this seems to have the evidence that so early on, the 12 apostles having not yet been sent out, other teachings right now that are still actively being realized, John yet, who has not been to our knowledge executed, but he's inquiring as he's in prison. These would be the early component years of Jesus's ministry, probably within the first, if not months. So there's a lot of stuff happening. And the reason that that's important is that it's not unusual for the Lord to repeat in a healing something that he's done for another and now is choosing to do it for a new person. And part of that is to say that God is not simply interested in a favorable report. He's showing that he is favorable to all reports about him. And he's not trying to do something new. He was specifically messianically prophesied as the God who would come and who would heal and he would forgive sin. He would set free the prisoner. He was going to do dramatic and dynamic effects on infected people. He still does that. So picking it up right now, it says after he had, and very likely, this is Jairus's daughter that was whom we spoke about last week, the report goes out into all that land. And when Jesus departed from there, two blind men followed him. So this is kind of the important part of the narrative. I do think that Capernaum was the staging area because we saw 
in one of the synoptic gospels that he had come back from the Gadarenes after setting free two demoniacs. And having then come back from there, you realize he entered into Peter's home. And so that really was Capernaum. It was the area that, that he would be welcomed, as far as we know. Nazareth was not a welcoming community where he grew up. Capernaum was, and it's where he centered himself. And the majority of his disciples, or at least well over half, had been in that community as fishermen and friends. So when it says that right now in this verse that there is a departing from there, he's en route to somewhere else. Jesus was known to be itinerant, or if you would, a circuit rider. He traveled about, and he did so because that was the means by which the message would be taken. He was literally just in advance of modern technology doing what he was able to do. Quite a God. If I were God, I would have chosen when cars were made by men to come and make my appearance. So at least I could have my choice of rides and tennis shoe technology that would make my feet feel happier. And Jesus came at a precise time in which difficulties abounded. And it kind of makes you, to me, uh, you, we really don't have any arguments about how tough life is, do we? Not really. Not really. When garments to keep you warm can easily find themselves dampened, not repelling water, sandals that can easily wear out under the heavy terrain of rock and thistle, learning really just how to find your sources of water, your supply of food, and the simplicity of what it is you may eat, maybe just fruit from a tree for that journey in a day. And man, we can pull in and get the Subway sandwiches and homemade soups. We can pretty much have everything at our fingertips. I give this as simply a highlight to bring to, you know, the listener that God chose to be inconvenienced in this life. God chose to suffer so that we are able to know with certainty he does know how we feel. And that's important because sometimes the way we feel is not necessarily in full agreement with how God feels either towards us or in fact what he's allowing to take place in our life that makes our connection more desperate for him. Have you ever been in that point where your desire, your desperate connection for God has been directly linked to what you are feeling? And that's a discipline when you understand that that connection, desperate, to be hearing from God, knowing God's will, has provoked you to really seek him adamantly. And so it's one of the reasons that Jesus profiled himself as one who was in touch with humanity and desired to touch humanity. There's no one that will be able to accuse him at any time, past or present or future. You don't know what I went through. You have no idea, Jesus. And I suppose that with that, perhaps, 
as I think some of us have. I think that I've said that before, that he doesn't take the insult personally because he dealt with such insult on the cross passionately. He lets it go. He forgets it. I have a difficult time in those areas. So on the circuit, he is. As he's moving, though, from, let's say, the central hub, notice what you have here. It's really an interesting dynamics. Two blind men follow him, crying out and saying, Son of David, have mercy on us. It's kind of a choir right now. But notice their handicap. They cannot see. And they're following him. It doesn't say that there are stretcher bearers. It doesn't say that they're screaming at him from the dirt. It says that they're making effort to follow him. And that's one of the things I think should be noteworthy. Do we, in our handicap, in this case you cannot see the one you want to see, and how possibly can you accurately follow that which your eyes cannot even track? It shows me a tenacity that in spite of what prohibits most of us from doing anything, it didn't. They were willing to stumble on a boulder, step on a snake. They were willing to be pushed out of the way because remember, the throngs would have been still in mass right now. Jesus was really turning heads and hearts and everybody wanted a piece of that pie, the sweetness of being touched by God. These guys in their desperation allowed there to be no turning back from even what would have been the blunder of a blind man. It doesn't say that they were using canes. I'm not saying that they couldn't have used it. But I like the enthusiasm that's interjected here that they make no excuse. Ah, we can't. Not the way that I am now. Not the way that things have turned out for me. They just give it their best. One of the things that they do in terms of giving it their best is they show a theological acknowledgement of the Lord. They do that by not only as he departs, they followed him they cry out to him and they use language that show the faith that they have that he's the guy. He's not simply a man who's a teacher, who's a rabbi, who's a community member, who came from Nazareth as a youth, who was born in Bethlehem. They understand that in this address, they are connecting with him in a messianic prophecy. Son of David, he is the one that God promised to David. And he is the God who has come to save. And so when they're using this, they really are showing us that they are astute, even in their handicap, meaning that God allows us to accomplish much with what perhaps we find ourselves incapable. He allows us to know more of him, than perhaps generations ago ever could because of the kinds of teachings that have been able to be available for us, commentaries that have been written by very intelligent and very proven spiritual men 
we have at our hands right now the entirety of the canonized Bible. I was listening to a history teaching today in Abeka, and they were talking about Martin Luther and how he was intent after being constrained in Catholicism and works-oriented and never feeling that his spiritual life was improving by the things he sacrificed or the things that he tried to do to please God. It came simply down to faith in God, the justification of a man in his faith. And then he became literally the voice of what we would call the Protestant Reformation, which it turned from Catholicism, idols, and heresy to Protestantism and conservative thought and radical faith. And his life was threatened because of that. In essence, he once was blind, but then he saw. In essence, we as well can be blind, but then we shall see. And we need to see. And whom we are looking at right now, Jesus is the one that permits that. And it's better than 2020 vision because it focuses upon him who manages all of the dimensions of what we do down here. I told you last week that I got a new prescription. I think maybe on Sunday, but I can't remember, is that I got a second pair of glasses with them. I know that I have some type of a prism bonus somewhere in the lens. I'm not sure if it's like one prism. That's all you get. $400, you get another prism. I don't know what it is, but I've got some type of prism. But they said, in two weeks, let your eyes adjust two weeks. Well, you know, when I got to the office, I was going, I I can't even read the what aisle I'm to be on. And I got actually sent out on a shopping trip and just like Gilligan's Isle didn't return until three hours later. You know, I'm the one that's always, excuse me, do you know where uh, the beans are? Sir, I don't work here. Sorry, I can't see. I'm that guy. So it's never a good thing to send me out shopping. Unless, in fact, they want me away a long time. But... So the point that I'm making right now is that that for me in this illustration, uh, I've completed about the first week, and I've noticed that there's there is better clarity that's happening to me. There's still some fuzziness. All all of your faces are very clear, and that's very pleasing to me. You're very nice looking, all of you. And I'm able to see at a greater distance now than I was able to as I'm driving. So it's like. I'm letting this play out. I'm going to wait until, as was prescribed, I have a time to adjust. And I think that's important, too, because there's going to be a huge adjustment that will be made in these men's lives as connecting with God, now being literally soon to be examined by him, the the supreme ophthalmologist. They're going to have an adjustment that they believed actually would happen. That's the type of theology and faith that they lived in, and enough to radically... (laughs) You have to understand, blind men getting up and running after Jesus meant, huh, I might now be blind and broken 
It's worth it though. Blind and broken. Humiliated. Who are you to seek the interest of this man, this miracle man? Well, their interest was connecting with the one whom they believed literally was the son of David. And as it opens up again, calling out, showing us their theology by recognizing this name. When he had come into the house, the blind men came to him and Jesus said to them, do you believe that I am able to do this? And they said to him, yes, Lord. So he's moving into residence right now, wherever that may be directed, he's going to the house. And they follow right up and they enter where he had entered. And I think that that's also a great picture that we are those who desire to stay close to him and enter as he makes opportunity for us. And we see what he wants to do. In this case, as they are questioned, here it is. Do you believe that I'm able to do this? So I think that that's important that we always say in the affirmative, I believe. It doesn't mean it's always going to work out the way that you expected. But I believe saying I believe gives me the opportunity to see how he's going to do it. My imagination can run wild. And it's a good imagination, but highly inaccurate, at least as far as what I found to be true about the Lord. I have just snippets, mosaics, that require me to find other details given to me as I step out and move forward. But then he says this, as they respond and say, Yes, Lord, he touched their eyes, saying, According to your faith, let it be to you. Let it be to you. This is very likely where the Beatles got their hit song. They didn't get it all right, but let it be, let it be. They didn't get it all right. They needed to have a conference with Martin Luther because Mary's brought it pretty significantly. But Jesus right now on the premise of how they followed him, entered in with him and cried out to him, said, yes, Lord, we believe. Let it be done according to your faith. Let it be to you. So what is it that you would say on this night, in this moment? Lord, let it be to me. Let it be to me. I want to see you in this. I want to have clarity concerning it. I believe in you regarding my welfare, regarding my future. In this case, this was going to be opening up their eyes in what we can assume they had not had the privilege of either for a very long time or since birth ever. But it says in verse 30, their eyes were opened and Jesus sternly warned them saying, see that no one knows it. 
But when they had departed, they spread the news about him in all that country. <clears throat> Stern indicates that they were very strongly exhorted to keep quiet about this. The reason that he was doing that, in case you need to have that as an insight, is because they had accurately conveyed that he was the son of David. It was one of the rare moments in which that was publicly uh, and to the masses brought as attention. And what Jesus was trying not to do was to find himself in the spotlight politically. To say that particular phrase, give him that title, it would have been a dukes up, ready to fight, see it 12 noon. And Jesus knew that in his audiences were those who were intending on giving reason for taking him on and taking him out. That is already conspiracies that had been intended. So he basically is saying, your theology is accurate. Be still with it. Live your life glorifying me, but make nothing of me on this account and here in this situation. What do they do? They spread the news about him in all that country. A time when Jesus says, yeah, your enthusiasm needs to be quenched on this one. So to one degree, they're exercising evangelism, but on the other side, your enthusiasm needs to be quenched on this one. We move into another scenario. It ends very quickly right now. I'm the one that's making it long. The next scenario, though, deals with a very important sense. Now, it's not taste and it's not smell, but it does deal with a tongue that seems to be tied. These men don't know how to tie their tongue, and this man has a tongue that needs to be loosened. They have eyes that were open, but they didn't have the discipline on how to use in this case, the tongue. This guy has eyes, but he does not seemingly have the faculties of communicating what his eyes see. It indicates as well that there was something that prohibited this demonic activity. As they went out, behold, they brought to him man, mute, and demon-possessed. And it says, When the demon was cast out, the mute spoke, and the multitudes marveled, saying, It was never seen like this in Israel. But the Pharisees said, He casts out demons by the ruler of the demons. Another passage, another place will say, By Beelzebub, which would have been the attachment that what Jesus was doing was linked to satanic activity. This has such brevity, you go, whew. I mean, it just moves right past what is the obvious. His tongue was tied. It was under the influence of demonic activity. It's cast out. He seemingly... This particular individual was brought in by somebody, and it may have been these two that had eyes to see, which wouldn't be surprising that radical things are done when 
our position in the Lord changes our attitude about God, what we're wanting to do for him. But important right now is the challenge that we see with now the Pharisees. They've been cued in that he has been pronounced as Messiah, and now they're looking for the evidence that would contradict, not accurately, but a lie that would be fabricated that by their authority they could make stick to Jesus. So he knows what it's like to be, if you would, lied about and his reputation slandered. He knows what that feels like as well. So eyes have been opened to see and to see the Lord specifically and to learn how to obey. Shh, be quiet on this one. Blah, 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 blah. Somebody that, however long he was incapacitated to speak normally, he has the privilege of being brought in, and in just that moment, his tongue was loosed as the demon was cast out. And so that is a reality. It's not a, it's not a myth. Demonic activity does exist. I think that I have seen it. It's very bizarre, scary. I don't look for it, but I am at times aware that it is present. Not with us. The Lord possesses us. But those whom the Lord does not possess, they're vulnerable to be possessed by the devil. And that's an important understanding. And they can be so much in the ability to convince us that they're one of us and they're not. So we have to have discernment and wisdom and we never make that our ministry, the casting out of demons. Jesus didn't. He just was able to, in a moment's time, know what that situation was with that individual. And so he exercised the power that was given to him by the Spirit to take care of the cleansing of that soul and the freeing up of that person that was held captive. Concluding here, it identifies in the subtitle, The Compassion of Jesus. Then Jesus went about all the cities and villages, teaching in their synagogues, preaching the gospel of the kingdom, and healing every sickness and every disease among the people. He's satisfying what was penned about him in Isaiah. And when he saw the multitudes, he was moved, notice this, with compassion. And it says, compassion for them because they were weary and scattered like sheep having no shepherd. And then he said to his disciples, the harvest truly is plentiful, but the laborers are few. Therefore pray the Lord of the harvest to send out laborers into the harvest or into his harvest. Sometimes what gets forgotten is that there is the outside, but remember the church functions most notably, powerfully, precisely on the inside. When we see that a harvest is plentiful, where do the labors come from? They come from the inside. 
to go to the outside, it's overflow. And it's kind of tricky because as generations grow up and move through, do they remain effective within the church or do they get scattered as sheep can get scattered? We want to keep our eye on the young families within this church. We want to keep praying that those whose homes need to have their kids tended in a fellowship are going to obey the Spirit and get their kids into fellowship. We want to see that our Sunday schools operate not as a campaign of we're better than the other church, but to tend our kids here with excellence, with compassion. It's tricky, too, when you have lots of kids on a Sunday, when you have kids that have come from different kinds of households. Again, I grew up in an Ozzy and Harriet household, so if you know that, I was a Leave it to Beaver young boy. Mom and Dad, Mom had the apron on. My dad had a cup of coffee before he got in the car, before either the MPs or staff picked him up. And uh, I'd get the dregs of Dad's coffee cup, and Dad would come home, and Mom would wait until he entered the house before we had dinner. That could be as late as 8 o'clock or 9 o'clock at night. We waited for the colonel. But my life really was that. I believe that the functional family is highly important and significant to the generation that we want to see raised up. And that can always be turned around. But the priority of a church is to see that our kids really are tended so that as they grow, mature, are given the spirit in the dynamics of evangelism, they are then prepared for that. So we want to keep our hearts and our eyes and our ears on these young kids. We want to pat them on the back. We want to be able to encourage the parents to keep that up because that's how you get laborers. But remember, the labor starts first in the church in which the fruit then is measured by what you see the kids doing. And so there's exciting things to be praying about. So we're closing right there on that. Jesus touching, Jesus freeing the mouth that was mute, giving himself over even in the time of his weariness because he is moved with compassion. He's moved with compassion presently on any issue that is before you. He's moved with compassion. So we want to be those who move with him in compassion. And we want to be those who also move well in obedience. You know, And that's the tricky one. <laughs> what does that mean in my life, obedience? Well, the two guys that had eyes were open. They were to just be celebrating that and not popularizing it. They got political. Theologically, they were right, but they made it more difficult for Jesus to stay out of the clutches or the cunning of the Pharisees. Isn't that cool? Jesus knew what potentially could happen. He could have just and switched them out. You guys now will be mute. 
the other man will see and he will sing. <laughs> but Jesus just really allowed himself to be played. That's not easy to do. That means you're aware that you're being taken advantage of. And rather than getting upset about it, you just are certain. The Lord is with me. It's only for a season. <laughs> 